Hi, hello, and welcome to Oh Boy, the podcast presented by Man Repeller. I'm your host, Jay Bume, and today's guest is the director, Silas Howard. Silas has directed a bunch of great independent films, um, as well as the hilarious web series Hudson Valley Ballers, and also music videos for folks like Peaches and Justin Vivian Bond. Silas also has the distinction of being the first trans director for the Amazon show Transparent. I think I saw on his Instagram the other day that they're already shooting the third season of that. I loved hearing Silas's story, and I'm really excited to share it with you. But before that, I want to say that this week we are thrilled to thank Audible.com for supporting Oh Boy. For a free 30-day trial, go to audible.com slash MR. That's audible.com slash MR, as in man repeller. This is a great way to show your support for our show just by signing up at audible.com slash MR for your free audiobook. Thank you, Audible. All right, let's get into it. things called sound baths where like this person plays all these crystal bowls and stuff and because there's no way there's the sound's not bouncing off of anything it's just like inside your brain so it's like a big dome right i think i have my friend went to it yeah and i don't think that i remembered it was called the integratron the integratron yeah sound bath oh my god it's cool it's cool so you've gone i've gone yeah yeah it is definitely worth a trip whoa yeah yeah. oh cool yeah i'm learning so much (laughs) Um, well, I'm going to interview you. <laughs> You've got far more information than I need. <laughs> that's it. That's the only thing I really know about is the Integratron. Um, where, uh, where'd you grow up? Vermont. In Vermont? I did. Where in Vermont? Kind of around uh, southern Vermont and then outside of Burlington. So I grew yeah. up in a town called Rutland. <laughs> and it kind of tells you everything you need to know about the town. Yeah. And then around Burlington, like Winooski and Burlington area. Oh, okay. I have some friends that live up in Winooski. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My mom lives there. It's actually interesting. Well, what was it like growing up there? Oh, it was just small town. You know, I had big dreams. I had to get out. <laughs> I had to get west. <laughs> where did, where, like, um, you know, when you when you look back on it, what, how, what do you think... How do you feel about it? I actually, it's a weird place because um, it's got a mix. I grew up very working class, so you know Vermont has all of the people that want to live, move there, that are maybe of a different economic, like mm-hmm. more middle or upper middle class that want to have a beautiful Vermont home. Right. Um, and then there's the Vermonters, and there's <laughs> even an accent. You know, like a kind of. It's like a northern version of, of is, a southern accent. Is it similar to like the Maine accent? It's different. It's okay. more nasally and there's no INGs. It's like going out to milk, milk the cows or something. It's like it's a little up in your nose and then don't say the Gs. Yeah. And um, But, you know, I feel like it is a place that has Bernie Sanders. Like right. It's that. And my grandmother actually just found her cardboard sign, homemade. I'll show you the picture after. She, uh, for his mayoral re-election she right. went out with a cardboard sign that said bernie all the way <laughs> and she like and That's she was amazing. like you know amazing character and you know was living on very little but she was uh pretty forward thinking and so he invited her to his wedding and what? he came to her funeral really? so i'm all for bernie sanders yeah. he's the real deal Did he he also like opened a punk venue when he was a mayor in oh, town. that's right was that was that open when you were there i don't i think i'm just realizing this i <laughs> i uh I didn't, um, I went to punk venues, but 
But I don't remember any Bernie's. I'm gonna have to look that up. You have to look that up. Yeah, I think when he was mayor, up. he opened up like this community center that was like you know like a, just had like punk shows all the time. Yeah, there was a great punk band called the Screaming Broccoli's. It's a very <laughs> '90s punk band name. <laughs> That's awesome. And then I was in a punk band, so. Well, we'll we'll, we'll get to that. What um? How do you think? <laughs> I wasn't I'm trying to rush you. No, no. I was like, I don't know and if you know this. And then that's it. Thank you. I'm going <laughs> to finish my damn salad. Drop the mic. <laughs> um, how do you think growing up there kind of like shaped who you are? Uh, I feel like because it was a weird mix. Like, So I grew up working class, but my parents were very um, small town freaks. Mm-hmm. Not in a, I mean freak in a complimentary way. Like yeah. my dad grew up similar class and like, uh, you know, but he had all these dreams. He was an entrepreneur and he was really trying to figure stuff out. So I felt like the city has its own sort of individualistic, like that we're going to have Bernie Sa- Sanders right. and, um, and, uh, people kind of moving there, bringing ideas and it had art coming through. So I had access to art mm-hmm. and sort of different class, uh, you could kind of in the schools, you know, I could, I could have friends with different class backgrounds. Right. And my dad worked in all these places that you know, he would be like a cook at a ski lodge or at a country club. So I would mix with all these other people and get, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I just feel like something about that small town, but access to um, people that had more uh, experience with arts or whatever. Right, it, it wasn't was, just like a singular experience. Yeah, it wasn't as trapped in right. a rural setting as maybe other states would have. I, I had access to culture. And, and you, you know? knew that, like, because I think a lot of people who live in a small town can kind of get stuck in the small town men- mentality. They can totally. kind of get stuck there. They don't see that there's something better out there yeah. or, like, the idea. So, where, I mean, do you feel that you were kind of exposed to that idea early on? Well, I had no choice because I knew I was a freak. So I was <laughs> like, I was like, I, I knew I was queer. I didn't yet know I was trans, but I was yeah. like, uh, I just decided I was an actor. I was meant for, you know, I had to get to L.A. So instead, I didn't, couldn't quite... As a kid, I was like, probably didn't know all those things, but I was like, I'm just an artist. I yeah. need to get out of here. So yeah. that was my code. Um, <laughs> but where did that desire come from, do you think? Uh, I think actually it came from uh, my family. Mm-hmm. I feel like they were very, my uncle was a writer. And oh, cool. My grandmother liked to paint. And my dad was, was, you know, and my mom was very creative, uh, even though she didn't want to do it uh, in any sort of structured way. And, and so I think that, was just around mm-hmm. and kind of a, and and I think also if you're not seeing yourself reflected or you feel like outside you the urge to make something is strong right just because you need to build something around you to feel like you have some choice or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> what what were you uh, what were you doing spending you know how would you spend your time growing up what were you doing <laughs> I love them. what was I doing you know I was really into which is interesting because now I'm a director and right. there's a similarity, but I would organize my friends to do <laughs> things. We'd put on plays or yeah. little businesses. I'd organize them to all like uh, try, you know, you know, uh, we would try to like win these contests. Like I was very driven <laughs> and my friends paid the price. Like radio contests or you would like make up your own contests? No, they would just, no, no, I would, they would be real contests, <laughs> yeah. but I would forget that just submitting didn't mean we'd win. So it'd be like draw this cereal box character and get win $50. And I'm like, okay, so we're going to get 10 of us to do it. And we're yeah. each going to win $50. <laughs> like I wouldn't always do the math that right. well, but the idea was there. The, the idea was there. there. The yeah. spirit was there. That's all you need. It is. Who are the folks that you looked up to growing up? I, that's a good question. Who did I, you know, I felt lucky in that my family, I really, uh, felt like my family was very creative and mm-hmm. I got that from an early age. Mm-hmm. They did things different and it wasn't always easy, but I think that I, uh, had an early appreciation for that. And they were, you know, they had had me when they were teenagers, so they would listen to good music, you know, so 
they were interested in, re- you know, so they were like kids, they were teenagers of the, of the 60s and 70s. Right. So I think that I had that around me and I was, they were a little crazy, but I, mm-hmm. I appreciated it, so. I feel like Vermont, uh, I feel like there's a lot of that going on in Vermont. Like people can just get up there and just like get their own space and just like yeah. keep it weird. Make yeah. it weird, keep it weird. Vermont's kind of weird that way. Yeah, in yeah. a good way, in a good no, way. No, it's true. And when I moved to San Francisco, that actually like was, uh, yeah, keep it weird was a theme. So you, you said that you said that you, you, you knew that you wanted to get out of there and uh, you wanted to move to L.A. So when did you do that? No, I moved to San Francisco. How did you end up there? Well, I think as a kid, I was obsessed with acting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably like an outsider's thing. Like you're not reflected or you're not, you know, loved enough or see yourself reflected. So you just want to be a a star, you right. know, or some sort of like so you get all that like affection showered exactly. Upon you. Yeah. So I was obsessed. So I was like this working class small town kid reading Uta Hagen's Respect for Acting. Yeah. Like I was a freak. And How did I, you know to like pick up her her book? I don't know. That's the weird thing about yeah. Vermont. I somehow had access to Uta Hagen, and uh, I would go on every audition, like community plays, and my father would drive me around to do all these oh, plays. Cool. And so I was like, I just need to get to Hollywood. It was like the contest. I just need to get there, and I will be a star. It's, it's all laid out for it's you. Just, you, you, just you, it, you just got to get there. You just got to get there. It was <laughs> get, like, you get. just got to send in the competition thing, yeah. and you win. That, um, then luckily I got sort of diverted from that, and when I was 18, I moved to San Francisco. I had an aunt there, and I also knew that I was queer, but I wasn't out in Vermont, and I was there wasn't really any visibility. It was, you know, it wasn't like any kind of role model that had no really clue of where to find mm-hmm. homos. So is this like late eighties, early nineties? Yeah. Yeah. It was like 91, 90, okay. no 90. Yeah. 89, 90. So I landed in San Francisco and also AIDS and act up was going on. It was mm-hmm. a crazy time to like arrive into a, a scene, but it was very motivating. Cause that's sort of where I found my people in queer punk. And I kind of like, I wasn't really connecting to the older generation of, of, um, gay bars or lesbian bars, whatever, but this, like, mix of gender and music and breaking shit and just, you know, all of that was much more It seemed like such exciting. an exciting time. Like, I was a little kid, and I had a I had a subscription to Juxtapose magazine. Oh, Do you remember cool. Juxtapose? I totally remember Juxtapose. <laughs> um, I would, like, read, you know, in the back of the magazine, they would always have, like, the art events or the openings and stuff they would go to, yeah. and I would see there was, like, there was a real heavy scene in San Francisco totally. with all, like, the great, like, poster art that was being made back oh, then, yeah. like, Frank Kozik and totally. all that stuff, and just, like, the punk scene there to me and you can tell me if I'm wrong it just seemed to have like um more of like an artistic bent to it yeah like it was more just it was much more wild yes in that way yeah it wasn't hardcore it was like there were a lot of different bands and and different um and also bands like Chumbawamba or the X Mm -hmm. uh you know we're using different kinds of instruments or we went on tour with a cello player um and stand-up bass for all these punk clubs and I think it was really and there was like a mix like our first show was a Gilman afternoon mm-hmm. show or like our second show but it was uh, Fugazi Nation of Ulysses and Bikini Kill <laughs> it was like fucking no. whoa it you, was amazing you, you played that show your, your band yeah, played that my show? band Tribate played that was like our second show really <laughs> and I remember my bandmate <laughs> turning to me and being like yeah Bikini Kill is going on this tour with this band Nirvana they're like gonna get really big oh they <laughs> 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 and, uh, but just, yeah, just Fugazi and Nation of Ulysses and yeah. just like that. And it was like you could feel, you know, there are certain moments in time and I think everybody's life where you're in a room and you just look at each other and you just know like something's happening. Yes. And you can feel it actually happening around you or, or, or with shared experience like you're all realizing. And so that was a matinee show that was... I got to digest, digest that show lineup for a second. It's <laughs> crazy. That's so crazy. 
Yeah. And if like people listening to this don't know who those bands are, just pause and like didn't go listen to everything that they've done <laughs> right away, <laughs> and then come back. Exactly. Um, <laughs> they were really just like, they were just like fucking badass band in terms of putting their politics into practice, like mm-hmm. their five dollar door, and mm-hmm. they would. So I had this cafe that was like a. It was like a coffee shop and truck stop, we called it, but we had performance and movies, and it was like a tiny little place, like the size of a two bowling alley lanes. This, and you had a cafe that you owned? Yeah, in San Francisco. Or that you ran? Yeah, that I ran. Okay, I how like, did that happen? Uh, again, we just needed a space, <laughs> yeah. and I'd already been in this punk band, and we were coming out of this era of like urgency. I felt mm-hmm. like what I got from witnessing ACT UP and Queer Nation was like, you want something to happen, just make it happen. Like right. you may not be around for a long time. Like you don't, you can't wait. Mm-hmm. Do it now, do it now. So we did a bunch of like, we did some money scams, some traveler check scams <laughs> that you can't do anymore. And yeah. we got a rented storefront and we made this little space and we had like Kathy Acker read there, Justin Vivian did readings. There. Like a bunch of different people came through, um, artists that, and then next door was a gar- art gallery that I swear if I bought one piece of art from each show, I'd be set because it was this like little gallery called Kiki Gallery. Okay. My friend Rick got it, right? He got diagnosed with AIDS and he, he knew he had a few years, so he decided I'm going to do this art gallery. And they had this just epic amount of like super irreverent, like crazy curated show. They had a, like a Yoko Ono tribute show and they just had all this stuff and all those artists, most of those artists have gone on to kind of become known. And um, that was like the time of like, that was like Barry McGee. Yeah. Uh, Margaret Kilgallen. Yeah. Do you know her work? Chris, Chris, Chris Johansson. Yeah, like all that era. Oh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, like the luggage then, store yeah. gallery? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what is the luggage store gallery? That's, it was is like that around? Up, it was upstairs. I think it might still be open. Yeah, I think it is still open. Yeah. But anyway, so we had this cafe next to it. Yeah. And, um, and uh, Fugazi, when they were doing their show, their huge shows, like they would pick community people. So they were like, oh, we'll have you do the sell the concessions, which is like, huge money i mean right. it's just like thousands of people buying sodas and stuff. And then we would donate part of that to a non-profit organization and use some of it so anyway they were just like really putting it into action like sort of making it trickle into the communities that were supporting them it was mm-hmm. just it's just really i think about that time too also like how uh cities ha- were able to feel different because everybody wasn't as so connected as they are um, now everything feels just so like the same yeah. in terms of like the way that places feel. That's there's, true. Th- there's something about like the, like, like, you know, it wasn't like, uh, you know, like if you wanted to get in touch with you to sell the concessions, it wasn't like as simple as like shooting off an email. No. You know, like you had to make effort to A do A human things. being had yeah. to tell another human being yeah. something <laughs> in the same time and space. When, when you moved out to San Francisco, did you know people out there? Um, no. You didn't? No. So, so you moved to the city and you, and you're, what, what did you want to do? Um, I wasn't sure. Yeah. I was really just trying to figure myself out. I mm-hmm. was like, the 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 big the big dreams of acting and all of that. I was like, now I was a young adult, and I was just like, I actually just want to find people that I think reflect, you know, that yeah. I can connect to. And so I just wandered around, and music was big. Actually, music was a lot of how I found my people. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, had a my buddy Harry Dodge, who I met, who I made my first feature with, mm-hmm. and who I did that cafe with. We uh, met each other, and and uh, their best friend Jimmy, who's in this band, um, we all lived together, and we just went to shows together. We were like bike messengers and cafe workers, and we would just go to all these shows. And it was like a, a, a bunch of great bands. Right. Was Puck around then? Who? Puck from the Real World. Oh yeah. Do you remember? Him? Yeah. Because he was a bike messenger and Puck. Totally. Yes. Whoa! You just said that, and this like <laughs> image flashed into my mind. Holy shit! I haven't thought about. 
that I haven't thought about puck in forever. Yeah. That's crazy. It's a trip. Because yeah. when I think Bike Messenger yeah, in San Francisco totally. in the 90s. Down by puck. Harvey's, the bodega where they cash your checks. Yeah. And would all drink by the wall. And yeah, puck. <laughs> was was the queer punk scene integrated with the other the other like facets of the punk scene in San Francisco? It was, uh, what I think was happening is uh, I wasn't connecting to any gay scene. So I hung out in the music world. But mm-hmm. I was like, oh, and then I tried to go to the gay bars because I'm like, um, you know. So it was like these two split worlds where I didn't really fit in with either, but definitely the music world more. Mm-hmm. And then slowly in the, all of the the music, which was all very accepting, like I think when we did our cafe or we were trying to do a collective through Queer Nation, like all the straight bands I knew did a benefit for a space that wasn't even for them. It was like, right. a, you know. So it was really like a supportive, great scene. There was just not a, there weren't hangups and it wasn't like, it's it awesome. was just, yeah, it was just very like uh, generous. I mean, I feel like, it was starting to get integrated. There was a club that was like, it was called Female Trouble and it was this queer punk and it was just like DJ, but people were going with like mohawks and moshing and I just remembered looking at my buddy and being like, that happens? Like, yeah. you know, queer people and punk is happening in the same, it was just this amazing, you couldn't believe it. And um, <laughs> uh, and then and then in, uh, with my band was sort of like a, a, a starting point of uh, when Tribe 8 formed and we were playing all these shows. It was like a melding of of like drag performance and punk and sort of like, uh, yeah, of all these different sort of shows, uh, clubs to two and all these different San Francisco sort of more performance clubs right. and Gilman Street all mixing in together. That seems so exciting. Yeah, it seems was like awesome. it was a really awesome time. It was actually. It was a. It was really a great. Uh, it was a great time. Pardon the interruption. I just wanted to say thanks again to Audible.com for reaching out and choosing to support. Oh boy. Audible.com is a leading provider of audiobooks with more than 180,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. There's a book you want, it's probably on audible.com. And the best part, right now, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial for Oh Boy listeners. Just go to audible.com MR and browse over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. And it's a great way to support our show. If you're new to audiobooks, you might want to check out the newly released Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, performed by Scarlett Johansson. Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and of having nothing to do. Once or twice she had peeped into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures or conversations in it. And what is the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures or conversation? Oh man, I want I want to listen to that whole damn thing. From Ghost World to Under the Skin, Scarlett Johansson's just about one of the best folks out there doing it today. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. Get a free 30-day trial at audible.com/mr. That's audible.com/mr. All right, back to the interview. So, how did you how did you form your band Tribe 8? How did that come about? Um <clears throat> the singer and I met we were kind of trying to clean up. We both were kind of cleaning up from like drugs and drinking and just like, oh, we need to do something that's not going to like destroy our lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, a friend was like, I'm having a birthday. Why don't you play in my backyard? And yes. so we grabbed someone and we're like, you're the drummer. And then we made up four songs and we played them like five times in a row <laughs> at a party. And everyone was like, this is so amazing. And so when we saw our our guitar player there who was like actually punk. We were fake punk. We were just a mess. <laughs> yeah. But she was like, 
amazing punk and she had been in a punk band in Colorado and she knew Biafra from then and she was in AFS, ASF, anti-scrunti faction. Anyway, they were like, and she was like one of the only punk women, women of color, queer women, like she'd be one of two and she'd be on stage playing. Yeah. But like in Boulder, she was like, you know, the only, and the only other person was her girlfriend. Anyway, so she was like a badass. She could have, she had this stare that was just like, yeah, totally would melt the, you know, heart, you know, whatever uh, jerk in the room. <laughs> but so we went up to her and we we're like, are you in a band or you just look like you are? Like, <laughs> and so she gave us the death stare and then joined the band. And yeah. she's like, but you guys suck. So I'm going to play an instrument I don't know yet because you guys. It's a match. It. Yeah. So you can catch up. <laughs> and then we did. We played terribly for uh, like a decade. Yeah. Yeah. But you and you guys, you guys had to tour all. Do you get to tour all over the world? We did. We yeah. toured a lot. We were on Biaf. We were on Alternative Tentacles. Um, we did like, I don't know, three or four records with them, and we toured Europe. We went on a tour with MDC, and we played with Green Day. And we played with like all different bands. Right. But, um, we toured a lot. Yeah, we toured quite a bit. That's cool. What um, what what is the thing you missed the most from that time? Hmm. Not a ton. It was <laughs> awesome. I don't need to do it again. I know, like, I know. I know. I agree. Like, I'm like sleeping on floors next like, to litter boxes full of cat piss. I don't know. Did it. Don't have to do it again. Don't have to do yeah. it. Yeah. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. I actually loved uh, the, the traveling around and, mm-hmm. and finding freaks everywhere instead right. of just in the cities. It was kind of really uh, an important thing. That's kind know. of the best thing about touring, right? Because yeah. it, makes, it makes everything seem a little more smaller and you kind of have yeah. like a better sense of the good nature and people that exist everywhere. It is a little, it is a little restorative of it restoring is. Yeah. Of humanity. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so w- when did you decide, like, how did the band end? Was it on good terms or? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was one of those. So I had, I had done, my cafe started a few years after the band and ran a parallel with the band all through my 20s. Okay. And then at like 28, 29, I, was, I wanted to do a film and again, I didn't really have any training, but I was just like, oh, I never see people I know or the world I know in, in, a, f- in a film that's just like like a film, like a, a narrative story. Just a regular story. Yeah, right. but like with us weirdos in it. Right. And then uh, so my buddy Harry, who I did the cafe with, who I'd met back in the day and was always going around to shows mm-hmm. with, um, we decided to do this movie and, and uh, cast ourselves as the leads and <laughs> well, wrote it and directed it. Did you, was that something that you kind of always wanted to do? Or was I just... got my acting out of the way. I mean, yeah, you know, that's true. You got... I got the Uta Hagen like, uh-huh. payoff there. <laughs> and then I was, I was, um, so I hadn't transitioned. So I always looked boyish and I always, and I played punk. And so it was like kind of cool in that as a performer, you're allowed to be gender, like a gender Fuck, right. you know, like Bowie and, you know, there's yeah. just like a long history of like that being hot or like even metal guys like loving to dress, even if they're straight, like right. dresses like badass uh, uh, and feminine outfits. And um, but but uh, I. Oh, so acting wasn't really on the table because I wasn't comfortable like making. So in my film, I got to play a, a masculine character that was whatever we called each other he in the movie but in in the movie if there were like police or what other people they would say she because it was like whether you're passing or not so anyway it was like I got to do a movie that was exactly what I wanted to do and get to be about a friendship and get to be like kind of a midnight cowboy style film and not but then there weren't any other roles so then I was like done that Mm -hmm. good I like directing awesome and uh and then I kind of went into film after doing that film the first film 
Well, just bu- just to back up for a second, how did you how did you get the funds together? How did oh. you get the production together? How did yeah. you get that going? Yeah, well, because we had started a cafe. Being mm-hmm. an entrepreneur mm-hmm. is a good thing as yeah. an artist, and we so we had to set up a little company to start the film, and we had some people around us that did know filmmaking more than we did. Um, and they also saw us like do the cafe and me do the band and my buddy did a bunch of theater productions that people are really excited about. So dot com, the first thing first dot oh, yeah. com was happening. So while we were all kind of losing our apartments, a lot of us were also a lot of my friends were also getting jobs, making money. Right. There was money fl- so people would were throwing that money towards so it's this weird thing where probably without that we wouldn't have gotten the funds. Wow. But at the same time it was like I actually lost my apartment during that time and moved to Emeryville and um, it, it seems like the was this in like the late nineties, early two thousands? Uh-huh, exactly. It seems yeah. like there was just so much a little bit little bits of money around to make small movies. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know? No, it's true. And we really um Oh, and then also my buddy got cast in a John Waters film. So that Oh like, awesome. Yeah, and Cecil B. Demented. Okay. So that helped, like, people were like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And there was still this idea, people were still buying indie films yeah. for a decent amount of, yes. of money. They didn't buy our film for a decent <laughs> amount of money, but other films. So there was some fun, so we, and we raised it in, like, little bits and pieces. That's mm-hmm. what we did. Just we'd sell a share or a half share, and um, a lot of the support from the community really made it happen. What so. Was that a, so what was the experience like making, making your first movie? Oh, it was terrible. It was so terrible. It really almost killed us. I mean, I, I was just saying this in, a, in an interview, but it, it was awful because but we had a, amazing support, and you write it, and right. it takes forever, and then you shoot it, and you have this amazing group, and then everyone goes away, and they're like, okay, make something good, and we and then we struggled to get it. It took three years, Wow. and we had a lot of like... Three years of shooting? No, no. Oh. No, it took a month of shooting, okay. and then we did like a week of, of additional photography, right. but no, it just took three years from start to finish, so a year writing, or a year and a half writing, fundraising, a month to shoot, yeah. a year or so to edit, and then it's not good enough, try to figure it out. So anyway, it was a lot of of work and we had no idea if anyone was going to like it we weren't really pandering we were kind of doing what we wanted to we were like what you should do yeah but it's a big risk and so so we were like oh god this is like yeah it's it's weird we're taking risks with language we're not doing good gay pr at all like we're showing these characters are kind of fucked up and and then um it it did well it did great actually considering like where it came out of it went to sundance and wow it won a best film at South by Southwest. Oh, amazing! It got a bunch of other awards, and um, it's been written about. B. Ruby Rich uh, writes about it, and um, uh, it's taught in queer studies films. But anyway, so it, yeah, it got some theatrical. So it actually, considering we had no experience and we did not know what what was going to happen with it, it, it did. That's well. that's so amazing. And then what was? What, do you remember like what that kind of felt like being like validated yeah. as this thing that you just took a you just like took a chance on? It it was actually a high point. I mean yeah. that moment when we screened it the first time and had no idea and people like stood up. We got like a ten minute standing ovation. That was probably a high point. So the, as terrible as it was, yeah, it, it went. It was up. worth it. Yeah, yeah, it was worth it. That's a great experience. Yeah, you know. So you kind of knew that you know filmmaking was the road you wanted to go down. You know, it's weird. I actually thought I never want to do that again because it was so it was like I feel like film either like brings you to your knees and that it like makes all of your worst traits go berserk Mm -hmm. or you get kind of spiritual and figure out how to be more healthy with it and I think I've done the latter because I really enjoy it now but 
it was so challenging and it was so like recreating my childhood of like, let's create this crisis and then, and then, or let's set this fire and then put it out. Or it just seemed like it was like this thing of my own doing that then I felt trapped by because it's such a long process and right. it's so much risk and it's so much like focused time. But, but I fell in love with another story and, and I did love the process, but it was just, you know, in indie film, you do it for years and there's no money. So it's like, it, it's a lot that takes a lot of toll, you know, it like does. not sustaining, not having a, a living wage for something that you really that is actually should earn a living wage if there's enough interest in it right. that, it, you know. So anyway, that was taking a toll, but I, I got really interested in another story and I felt like uh, I went to UCLA and got an MFA to sort of buy time, practice the craft, and I oh, knew okay. I could teach off of it and I was just trying to figure out what I would do. And then I, I, I kind of fell in love with it through like pushing through the challenges that it brought. Were there, were there any filmmakers that you looked up to during that time or movies that really yeah. affected you in a personal way? There were a lot. I mean, a lot of the movies of the 70s, like mm -hmm. Midnight Cowboy and One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest and stuff were really like my films sort of hearing about or seeing. Um, and then filmmakers like Wong Kar Wai, his films, and um, Mike, Le Mike, um, Mike Lee, Mike, Mike Lee. White, okay. Mike White, and... Um, Miguel Ortega, uh, when they did Chuck and Buck, like all these odd, Julian Donkey Boy, Harmony Corinne, there was like a lot of weird the best. films going on, like Gummo and... I got my VHS um, copy right there from when I was in, like, oh, when right. I was in high school. Oh, amazing. Yeah, oh, that's like, that's that, that's, yeah. that's my favorite movie. Yeah, it's, that was a Gummo big... Gummo is just, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, I, it's still so good. Oh, it's really amazing. And when we showed our friend who was producing, we're like, we like Gummo and Happy Together by Wong Kar Wai and this... Chuck and Buck movie, and they were all like so weird and so like bummery. Yeah, and then I just my buddy was like, "Oh man," like they were kind of into genre and like comedy or like it, it was just it was just like not their yeah. dream scenario. But yeah, all of those films, like films that were taking risks, that were just trying to do weird. Even Buffalo '66, even though I'm not a huge Vincent Gallo, that movie was like doing something totally fucking different with language, <laughs> and visual language, and that movie it's pretty amazing it's right? fucking amazing yeah it's yeah. fucking amazing yeah he just did he just tried shit out and it it seemed like it came out of an urgent need of mm -hmm. storytelling need so it i i feel like it's a giveaway when someone's doing it because it's kind of like a cool thing to do it never works but right. if it's like i need to tell this story and i need these things to happen how can i make the right this two-dimensional screen convey that I like Zara is just yeah. pitch perfect in yeah. that. Anyway. Oh yeah, no, that was and that was all of that was happening and and Julian Donkey Boy I think was Harmony Corinne's first digital. So we were also shooting digital, mm -hmm. and, and that was allowing us to make the film because it was a like early legitimate experimentation with it. Right, Chuck and Buck was also digital too. I, believe. I think it was, and the celebration, the celebration, uh, which was like crazy amazing. Thomas Finderberg. Yes, yeah, yeah. We, that was a big that was a big influence too because you kind of bought into the look of it and it was really and then you got obsessed you know the performance just really overcame right aesthetic all that stuff kind of just falls in the background it does yeah, yeah that's cool yeah. so so what, what was the biggest thing you took away from 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 film school um oh man i really i got to make some stuff that didn't work right i had to practice directing right. i got to um yeah learn learn there's so many things like i just feel like you have to just keep doing it mm -hmm. and then i i got this great group of friends that I still work with yeah yeah I had so, the exact same experience yeah. at film school like whenever people ask me I'm like yeah it's a great place to make mistakes yeah you know totally and I'm, I'm teaching you know film right now at Cornell and I'm, oh, cool. I'm always challenging them to I was like you know I'm always like I'd rather see you 
fuck up trying something that you're not sure will work, then play it safe. Exactly. It's something that you're not interested in. And yeah. they made some really great stuff. But that yeah, cool. I work with my, I just, with Dalmar, who I went to school with, we just did the Peaches video and she's shooting on high maintenance. Anyway, we're all like working and bringing each other onto jobs. And That's cool. Yeah, that part's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, Wait, so, where did you go to film school? Oh, uh, Penn State. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, my, my best friend is that, you know, that I met there, he's my DP, he shoots all my stuff. See. Like it's, it's like community. It's like music. I mean, for yeah. me, it's like, that's where I eventually figured out film is I was like, oh, it's kind of like music and bands and all these dysfunctional relationships that you hopefully figure out to make yeah. work in some way in your favor. Yeah. Um, yeah so. Um, so when you, when you finished school, what was, what was your plan? What did you want to do? Um, I... I went to school like wanting to make films, but mm-hmm. also very realistic about the kind of films I wanted to make, that I wasn't necessarily looking to do sort of studio films. And I wanted to teach as well. Like I was kind of like, I, wanna, I don't think that's a bad thing if I come out and I make films, but I teach to make my living because I didn't right. want to depend on my storytelling to be able to monetize that. Right. It's a tough thing to do. Yeah. But weirdly, uh, as soon as I was went into... Uh, UCLA program, I had my second script that I wrote uh, with my friend Nina Landy, uh, optioned by HBO. So then I was at HBO for like two years while I was in grad school, and I was getting paid to develop this project. That's I was amazing. location scouting and, ca- and a casting, but we didn't end up, uh, we ended up taking it back for a number of reasons. Um, and Picture House closed, which was their feature film department, so it was good. They was kind of like on the way to ending. Mm. Um, but it was actually not a bad experience. I mean, at the time, it was traumatic when we had to take it back because it was just like we're gonna we're going and we're going, and, and then it's like this mind fuck that all of a sudden you're not. But um, but in reflection, it was great that I got paid to develop this project. I still want to make the project, at, and um, and they were very supportive. They were gonna let me cast a non actor to play a trans role. 10 years ago, wow. which I think is like way ahead of the time. Yeah, that's great. Then oh. I, I did that. That didn't work. And then I directed anything and get my hands on. You just do anything. I just would do. I was a yeah. super film slut. I just like direct web series, direct this, direct that. I didn't that or like web commercials just and then developing my own stuff, doing stuff I cared about. What do you think? What did you love about it? What do you love about, you know, directing? Huh. It's really. Uh, it's just I love the. uh this building up of this world. I think I've done it since childhood. It's mm-hmm. like creating this world that I want to see and, mm-hmm. but also collaborating. And, and I, and I like the, I like the structure of it. It's like kind of, I love that my cinematographer loves doing cinematography and I love, you know, like that's organized in that way where you support each other, um, to, to build this. So it's like building a house or something. Right. I feel like it's really, you really get to build this structure. Like building a house and like, you know, creating a family, like your yeah. version of like yeah, exactly. who you want to spend your time with. And it's kind of great. You're like, you bond and you're like, we're friends for life. And then it ends and then you forget each other pretty quickly. It's, but that's the same thing as touring, right? You know, like yeah, you go on tour true. with someone and you yeah. become like, you have like, you're, you're, you'll be, you won't see them for like 10 years. Yeah. But like the, when you see them again, it's like it's no true. time has passed. Like you've been through that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it it's creates very, these awesome bonds. It does. It is like these these you know? kind of like little family bonds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, Hudson Valley Ballers? Oh, yeah. How did that come about? Oh, my God. I love Paula Pell and Paula James Pell's Anderson. Awesome. Her yeah. movie just premiered, I think, last night, Sisters. Oh, the one with uh, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my friend Michelle Lawler is an amazing cinematographer and filmmaker, and um, she was shooting a short film that, Paula Pell was acting in and they formed a friendship and they were always joking back and forth and um, Paula is this amazing you know she's been she's probably created half of the 
iconic SNL characters right. that we've all known. And uh, Michelle was like, God, you're such a baller, you're such a baller. And she just thought it's so funny. I live in Hudson Valley with my two dogs and three cats. And so Hudson Valley baller came out of this kind of joking between them. And Paula like texted Lorne Michaels, I want to do this. And he's like, <laughs> texted her back um i'm bragging for paula oh yeah we'll do it on above average our youtube channel and um it was fun both series were fun so the first series was like a uh in paula's house and you know paul rudd came and yeah, kate mckinnon stars, yeah. yeah and it was just like we made on a dime mm-hmm. like everything in paula's house and then the second series was like made on three dimes mm-hmm. and uh we kind of redid a reboot um and uh Anyway, it's just like the chemistry of James and Paula as friends for 30 years and writers on SNL for so long. Mm-hmm. That chemistry that is just so weird and and, and, and original that it was really great. That's so, cool. Yeah. What, what are the things that get you excited about working on a project? Like what draws you to, to stories? Well, like Paula and James, their comedy is, is probably different than the comedy I typically do in my own work, although comedy is always awkward. Comedy is really like always a part of it or I'm always seeking that but with Paula and James I knew where their comedy came from like Mm -hmm. it felt like there were these friends in the south you know bonded and and sort of their comedy was so much how they were making the world okay like making it okay in the world for themselves and the people that they love so I guess it's like that's what gets me excited is like what somebody's intention and then transparent it's like that was so coming from Jill's experience right with family and then bringing a family together to make the show. Like I think those kind of people that are, are understanding that's like what's behind the lens and in front of the lens is all part of it. And it all kind of translates really, uh, uh, like, yeah, I like the kind of spell casting of, like, you know, shooting in somebody's house and they have items that mean something to them right. or, you know, that kind of stuff and That's people cool. that, that get that. I, I was reading something about Transparent and from from what it seems like is that Jill Soloway, like, you know, works really hard to create an environment that, um, you know, she, to making, like, the experience, like, comfortable for everybody in front of the camera and behind the camera. Yeah. Was that, like, your experience? No, very much so. I mean, we did, uh, they're doing... Um, they're doing really non, they're really focused on the art and sort of discovery of ideas and taking risks and and not showing up with a plan like a hard and fast plan, but being mm-hmm. open mm-hmm. Um, to what what might be discovered. Yeah, that's but, the magic. Yeah, that's the magic. So you have a plan, and then you hope to not need it. It's right. like something better. Will, but yeah, you know, you have to have you got a plan to for like the for like the the people in charge yeah. with all the dimes. Yeah, and also <laughs> just your like. Oh, I think this scene is about this, so therefore putting the camera here would actually highlight that. So it helps you sort of know what you're working with, right? right. How you're gonna translate it. But uh but yeah, they they did a lot of things like, you know, her and her cinematographer Jimmy Frona, you know, did collaging for some of their storyboards and they're like, You could do this, here's a bunch of magazines, whatever and I love that. <laughs> and we did a workshop with this directing coach guru where we're you know, day one we did like this eight hour workshop with the principal cast. And uh, the guest directors, and we're just walking around, like, staring at each other's eyes and do, do, being present. And it's yeah. really smart because actors do that. They're, that's, like, something they do. But for directors to uh, have that, like, be that present and vulnerable with the cast was a great, actually a great uh, door opener, I think, for us coming into this family right. intimacy and that we were taking risks and we were sort of being vulnerable. That's really interesting because I guess I always thought, like, TV directing, obviously much different than film directing, but it's more so... TV never 
now more it seems more but i don't know if it was always like the place where the the director shines no you know yeah or the director has like some sort of you know like intimate relationship with the material or like the story it's kind of like the showrunner kind of sets the tone and i mean what was your experience working on the show well definitely what was great is that it was open like i could give notes on the script and then mm-hmm. it was nice because I could give my thoughts and then just trust that the team was going to do the right thing like they're holding the season so and also Jill's really helming the show like she's setting the tone which I think because that's very clear it allows ideas to be open as long as gotcha. possible because you do know somebody's like as much as I love directing I love when somebody is overseeing something if I'm not overseeing mm-hmm. it and I can just you know um be in service of the story and the, and the vision of the story. That's cool. So, yeah. Did you, um, what, what did you want to bring to the experience? I guess just my, you know, I feel like storytelling, it's like in our DNA and right. sort of cumulative of our life experience and that kind of informs all of these little micro decisions. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to be as present as possible and That's like great. not get in the way from uh, what was happening in the show, but still bring stuff to it. You know, how did you de- how did you develop your your style and approach to to storytelling, filmmaking? Um, Jeff, doing it a bunch, yeah. doing it a bunch, watching a lot of movies, doing it a bunch more. Mm-hmm. It's always so different, which is the best part about it. Yeah, you know, that's there's, cool. there's not a real. It doesn't get boring, that's for sure. What have been the frustrating moments for you trying to make it as a filmmaker? Um, well, you know, financial sustainability right um but i did feel really grateful that prior to you know now that i've had access through an amazing show like transparent i've gotten i've gotten to direct you know already another tv show a different show Oh, amazing what show um this mtv show it's like a teen show it's amazing and it's totally different yeah it actually has a lot of heart and a lot of like badass uh like groundbreaking stuff and it's and it's targeted for this younger crowd it's really it's really awesome um but uh but I was really at peace with like I don't need to make my money in mm-hmm. what I make. I, mm-hmm. I'm not that delusional, but but I have the skill set. Like I, I really feel, yeah. So anyway, I think that um, I forgot your question. Oh, it was just what were the frustrating moments for you trying to make it? Oh, yeah, film money, film? Money. <laughs> money. But also my own my own um, uh, I think being hard on myself, like always wishing, like doubting. I think uh, as much as I'm like I was at peace with making weird films, I also wasn't at peace all the time because you believe that. The best filmmakers in the world are the ones at Hollywood Studios. Like, you know that's not true, right. but you believe that that is the best. That's like the bar. And if you're not part hit, of the yeah. best, and I think I started to internalize that, and I, and I so, yeah. That's How it. did you overcome that? Um, well, I couldn't really stop doing work, so I just <laughs> yeah. was alternately, like, self-loathing, and, like, I'm awesome, so right. I just go between the just two. Just riding that wave up Yeah. And yeah. Hit life. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Like, being a filmmaker, you're in your head all damn day. Yeah. So you just, you know, you spend a lot of time just beating yourself up yeah. inside your head. You're not yeah. really, you know, it's just your you know, arguments with yourself and fights just in here because everything comes from in here. Yeah. You know? No, and it's true. And I think that part of why I like it is that it eventually I do get exhausted of that uh-huh. and I get a little, like, oh, this thing I'm really happy with. Like, it may not even be the thing that got the most attention, but I love this thing that I made. And that's like a hard fought for a moment where you're just like, I love this fucking thing. And it doesn't mm-hmm. even mean anything in the larger world. And then you also just get a little lighthearted. Like, oh, I fucked up this other thing. Like, that's okay too. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, like, yeah, you're like high for a second and then you're like back down, yeah. right? Yeah, back down. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what is something that you know now that you wished you would have known when you first started? Hmm. That's a... Good question. Uh, 
I, you know, I was thinking about something that Jill said to me when I was shadowing a uh, uh, set, one of the episodes she was directing, and it was a really sweet moment. We were just walking somewhere, like craft services, and she was just like, oh, I wish I had known when I was younger and these ideas weren't going through that it wasn't me. So mm. I think that, that that kind of, I wish that like just sort of in general for people, but then of course for myself is to just be like, yeah, to not personalize the rejection, to like be, be you know, a little less like thinking that, that it's, it's not, yeah. not about you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't know. That's good. More, That's more good gentleness, that. love and harmony. <laughs> what are the things that make it all worth it for you? I, I guess, uh, God, it's hard to distill it down. But, you know, just um, it's an honor to get to make films, I think, you know. So when I have a group of people and, and they're working on a project, you know, they're, they're donating their time for like a labor of love project and, and they're really happy with it. It's just like we kind of got to transcend like we green light each other so mm-hmm. those moments when it comes out well and everyone's really happy with what we made together those are like the, my favorites that's cool sure. and um what's next where do you where do you want to go with everything um to the top <laughs> world domination <laughs> to the top to the top um i have a bunch i have projects that i'm working on and uh, i have a project i'm working on with my friend antonia crane who's a writer and it's about the first exotic dancers union in san francisco oh, wow. the lusty lady that's cool and she was part of the union and we were both around. It happened in 97. So we just got a, a grant from SF Film Society for finishing the screenplay. And I'm going to go meet her there in a couple of weeks to do another big sort of pass on it. And hopefully I'll make it in the next or get into production in the next year. Oh, that's really exciting. Yeah. That sounds cool. Yeah. I think it'll be really uh, exciting. Awesome. Uh, Silas Howard, thank hey, you so much. Thank you. Appreciate thank it. you.